For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The newest report from the White House Coronavirus Task Force puts the state's positivity rate at fourth in the nation. Oklahoma also ranks ninth for daily rate cases per capita. It's the first time both metrics have put the state in the top 10 and keeps us in the red zone for transmission of the virus. Neva, should the state be doing more to stop the spread of this disease? Well, I think I think where we're at is the governor's made it pretty clear that uh, he is not in favor of a uh, mask ordinance or, or some sort of... Uh, uh, protocol coming out of his office that would suggest that it be done statewide. And what we're seeing in Oklahoma is not unusual to the extent that major university towns in particular across the nation are experiencing this uptick in terms of the statistics and the fact that we are seeing uh, the large metropolitan areas, much more movement because of school being back, universities being back. I mean, some of this is just, I think, uh, a given statistically that uh, doesn't surprise very many folks. And I think we have to take into account the political dimension to this. Uh, Republicans uh, point to more testing being the reason. Democrats say it's uh, more infections. And so we have this uh, political divide that's going to continue uh, uh, on through uh, on through the the COVID pandemic, it would appear uh, you have the president, uh, you know, emphatically saying that the country's increase uh, in cases is the result of more testing. Uh, Republicans ten- tending to agree with him, and then the flip side, uh, Democrats who disapprove of the of the president's uh, job performance, overwhelmingly say that it's infections, not just the test. Ryan. Yeah, you know, as Neva says, the the response to COVID has largely become political, both at a, a state level and at a national level. It's it's interesting though that the the White House task force seems to deviate from what we even hear out of the mouth of the president himself. The president himself seems to be much more in line with what we're seeing coming out of uh, Governor Stitt. I mean, they seem to be more politically in line with the rhetoric that we see coming from both of them. But with this task force, what they're really asking Governor Stitt to do is to reverse a political position, not a policy position, but a political position. We've seen from the outset of this virus that in Oklahoma, Governor Stitt uh, has said there's not going to be a mask mandate. There's not going to be a statewide mask mandate. The governor himself refused to wear a mask for the longest time. And then even after he had coronavirus, you know, failing in his own leadership, uh, and wearing a mask again. But now we've seen some reversing course in that and you know, some suggestions, but it's largely been left to mayors uh, in some of these larger municipalities to institute mask mandates, and they're working. Now, I mean, I think we're going to talk a little about that later today, perhaps uh, with the Oklahoma City mm-hmm. extension of the mask mandate, but these mask mandates seem to be working. And, you know, the, the governor's response uh, to this is, just been to to cast it off as well. This is really just a reflection of increases, isolated increases in spread, and in, in particular in places like prisons. Well, first of all, uh, the folks in prisons are people, and so to to discount the spread there and the deadly spread there, <clears throat> because we do have COVID deaths in prison now uh, that are that are happening. You know, there's just been not enough done in response to this, and this White House task force should be a wake up call to this to this administration. I, th- I think when we talk about the governor's response, though, I think what we have to 
really point out here is the fact that he believes the decision is best made locally. And quite frankly, uh, the response by Oklahomans, by and large, has been the same. I mean, in communities where they have wanted uh, uh, additional uh, measures taking place, a ma- mask ordinance or something like that, or additional uh, additional things, that has occurred when city councils and mayors have uh, felt felt the uh, felt the push, felt the pressure uh, from the folks in their respective communities. And I think that is uh, a, a significant takeaway from all that we've seen. The Thus far with COVID, you know, I think if the if the governor could express some leadership there, I mean, we've seen we have strong mayors in in Oklahoma City, strong mayors in Tulsa, uh, an incredibly strong mayor in Norman, uh, and they have political coalitions there that that can back them in those mask mandate efforts. In these smaller rural communities, uh, you know, we we oftentimes don't have full time elected officials working there. I mean, these are these are volunteer part time positions, and to uh, have the governor at their back right now. I think would ease some of the political pressure that a lot of these rural mayors feel uh, in not having mask mandates right now, especially more uh, Republican conservative areas of the state. A federal court overturns Oklahoma City's panhandling ordinance passed in 2015. The 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals finds the restrictions on traffic medians reveals troubling evidence of hostility to panhandlers. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this ruling? I mean, it, it's an overwhelming win for the First Amendment. It's an overwhelming win uh, for the people of Oklahoma City and, and all of Oklahoma and, and every state that's in the Tenth Circuit. Uh, this found that the state uh, that the city of Oklahoma City, you know, back beginning in 2015. This, I mean, this lawsuit was originally filed in 2016. So, I mean, it takes a while for these things to make them make their way through the court. But this became one of the most important First Amendment fights in the United States and the Tenth Circuit's. A decisive victory uh, opinion here is a victory for the plaintiffs, uh, of which uh, the ACLU represented several of those folks, including myself and uh, a magnificent legal team. And I, I would get in trouble if I started trying to say thanks to everyone that worked on this. But Professor Joseph Tai at the University of Oklahoma, Michael Salem, Megan Lambert at the ACLU of Oklahoma, some spectacular lawyers joining with some you know, really big national lawyers. Erwin Chimerinsky joined the plaintiffs' legal team. But what the court found was that this wasn't about safety. And that was you know, a made up fact uh, from the city afterwards. You know, The city originally did this. Councilwoman Meg Salyer, when she introduced this, this was an anti-panhandling ordinance and it criminalized poverty for the most part. It, it made it illegal and created opportunities for law enforcement interaction with impoverished people on medians and other people that use those medians for political protected, or for uh, protected First Amendment purposes. So when the city came forward and said, you know, here's our justification. The court said there's there's you can't just criminalize poverty. And then they said, well, it's safety. And then there's no evidence of that. And the court found over and over again that there was no record. There was no evidence in the record that the city of Oklahoma City could put forward that this ordinance actually protected people. And when they couldn't do that, the First Amendment stepped in and uh, these speech activities, whether they're political or folks just having conversations with other people out on the medians while they're jogging, all of those uh, speech activities are protected speech under the First Amendment, according to this opinion. Neva. Well, I think the judges, I mean, were, as Ryan has indicated, were very specific about the fact that they used the term that they were baffled uh, by the lack of evidence of harm. And uh, I, I think that uh, what the appeals court, federal appeals court did was uh, uh, clearly uh, m- make it uh, uh, very clear in the minds of, of 
all Oklahomans now, I mean, when, when they look at this issue, that uh, the time-honored tradition uh, of standing on medians, whether it's to campaign for votes, whether it's to fundraise for a charity, or whether it's to panhandle for necessities, uh, these things were upheld as being a part of uh, 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 an individual's constitutional right. And the Ryan is also, I think, that the point that you made about the fact that the length of time that it has taken for this to be resolved, I mean, four years of, of legal work and, and the taxpayer dollars uh, being utilized uh, to uh, make this case that uh, proved in the minds of the, uh, uh, of the, of the uh, federal uh, court of appeals uh, to just be uh, insufficient and, and woefully woefully uh, uh, thin on trying to trying to make that case. So I think it's resolved. I, I would uh, I would uh, be shocked to think that the uh, council would move in any direction to try to, you know, bring bring this matter up again and try to pu push on an ordinance given uh, given what seems to be an awfully strong uh, and uh, uh, very firm opinion that uh, this measure, in fact, did violate First Amendment rights. Ryan, have you heard whether this is going to be appealed by the city of Oklahoma City? I would be shocked if it was appealed. I mean, the the uh, opinion is so overwhelming by the Tenth Circuit. Um, even an en banc review seems uh, seems unlikely at this point. And to Neva's point about the length of time and the amount of cost to the city of Oklahoma City, it's it's really a shame. I mean, we could have been spending the hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in legal expenses, if not more, that the city of Oklahoma City has spent or will spend in paying the legal fees of the plaintiffs here. Um, that could have been spent on actually addressing the underlying causes of poverty uh, in the city of Oklahoma City. I mean, we've. I think that the, the tenor of the city council has changed. We're much more likely to see them accept this and move forward and, and begin to look at uh, uh, you know actual solutions to poverty instead of just criminalizing poverty. Um, but all of this could have been avoided. I mean, if, if you go back around 2015, 2016, when the city council was in Oklahoma City was first looking at this, there's an internal legal memo from the city attorney saying, if you do this, it will be challenged and it will likely be ruled unconstitutional. The city knew what they were walking into. I don't think that they knew that they were walking into such a slam dunk opinion as what came out of the 10th circuit here uh, against them, but they knew what they were walking into and they did it anyways. And, and to me, that's, that's the real shame here is that the city was aware of it. They walked into it and they wasted hundreds of thousands of, of dollars uh, in, in fighting uh, a, a, a cause that they knew uh, to be fruitless at the beginning. The state is defending current absentee voting laws. Uh, arguments from Attorney General Mike Hunter come as two Democratic Party groups are calling for an injunction against the measures requiring notarization, witnesses, or photo IDs to vote by mail. Neva, has COVID-19 changed the argument here? I don't think so at all. And I think we talked about this even uh, during the time of the primaries. Uh, we've had two elections already. Um, and uh, despite uh, all of the, the the conversation around COVID and what the potential impact could be on elections, I mean, what we saw was that previously we had about four uh, percent absentee ballots uh, in in previous years. In the June primary, we had fourteen percent. So the notion that somehow voters are we're making it uh, too cumbersome, there's an undue burden on them to be able to go through the process uh, to be able to absentee 
vote is just absolutely bogus. I think this is uh, the Democrat Party nationally has been uh, pushing this uh, uh, agenda on states and in Oklahoma. There is just nothing to indicate. Uh, there's even the weight of scientific evidence uh, uh, does not suggest anything that uh, there is a difficulty with folks being able to uh, uh, to absentee vote if they choose to go that direction. And I think the other point is the governor uh, last Friday extended the state of emergency, which will uh, continue to bypass the notary requirement, which was one of the uh, one of the things that they had uh, tried to kind of hinge their whole argument on. And so I think looking at this uh, going forward, it's going to be an ongoing uh, uh, debate. But right now in the state of Oklahoma, I think the voters are clear on what their options are, and I think we'll see no uh, no more problem in the general election as we saw in both the primary and the runoff, which was from the absentee perspective, no problems in Ryan. that uh, in that part of the process. Ryan, you know, I, I think that the the problem that was there is that more people didn't participate uh, in the absentee process, and that. By having this cumbersome notary requirement in Oklahoma, and even though there's an emergency order that uh, uh, circumvents the notary requirement, I mean, it's, it's all very complicated and convoluted. You know, I was I was a part of the litigation back in the spring that originally invalidated the notary requirement uh, under a 20-year-old Oklahoma statute, uh, and then the then the state legislature in, in warp speed. I mean, anybody who says that the legislature can't get something done if they want to get something done, just look back in the spring when on Monday, the state Supreme Court says notary requirement is invalid uh, or optional if people will self-affirm on an absentee ballot. And then the legislature comes back and within a matter of days, puts a bill on the governor's desk that he signs that allows him now in these emergency times to have a, an, alternate, an alternate process to the notary requirement where you affix a copy of, a, of an ID to your absentee ballot in lieu of a notary, if that's what you so choose. I can tell you, as somebody who was part of that whole process, when I got my absentee ma- ballot in the mail uh, for the primary in July, um, you know, I'm, I'm double checking and triple checking everything and making sure that I've got it exactly right. And you know, I'm, again, I'm a lawyer, I'm a political advocate, I was on the case, I knew the law, and it was still, you know, it still wasn't, you know, all that intuitive. Uh, and so the notary requirement to have something that's not that intuitive, it ought to serve some purpose. And there's just really no purpose. And what we're really seeing here playing out in Oklahoma is the campaign that the president has begun waging uh, against absentee voters, uh, ab- absentee voting, voting by mail, alleging that it's fraud. And what we're seeing is him trying to set up an issue for after the election. Uh, to be able to try to claim that there's some sort of fraud or conspiracy against him to rob the election away from him when there's just absolutely no evidence of fraud at all. Uh, and that's just not the case. One of the other things that the, that the plaintiffs are looking for in this litigation is to extend out by a few days uh, the time with which absentee vote of, uh, ballots that arrive by mail can be counted. Right now, they've got to arrive by election day. Uh, and what they're asking is if they, it's postmarked by election day, uh, you know, it could arrive up to three days later. And so if there's some disruption in the mail, if, you know, if the, if it falls through the cracks, if it shows up within a window after the election, as long as it was postmarked on before the election or on election day, it should count. And I think that that just seems reasonable, uh, to make sure that every single vote is cast that's cast is counted everything from, uh, state legislative races all the way up to president. 
You know, it's interesting, though, when this uh, political science professor testified last week at the hearing uh, uh, for the Democratic Party, uh, he, here's here's what came out. Eighty percent, he said, estimated 80 percent of the twenty three hundred ballots statewide would be rejected uh, in November uh, if uh, if because they wouldn't arrive by Election Day, November 3rd. It has always been understood with absentee ballot balloting that if you mail in your ballot, it has to be there by election day. This is, uh, I mean, this just seems preposterous to, you know, to be keen in on something like this. I think the big point is simple. People don't vote. And so when we talk about giving them options, I mean, the best case to be made is to educate people. And even with all of this concerted effort on the part of both major political parties to try to engage people, to try to boost turnout in November, we will still see um, a percentage of, of American voters uh, not going to the polls uh, in, in large numbers. And that's been our history. And it's a sad commentary uh, on our democracy and something that I think that's where more than the focus on trying to split hairs on absentee deadlines for when the ballot comes in and these sorts of things, it should be about engaging people in what should be uh, something that they take very seriously and want to make every effort to do, and that is go cast their ballot uh, in the general election on November 3rd. Oklahoma City extends its mask mandate until October 20th. The vote passed 7 to 2 after pulling back from an original plan to extend the mandate till the end of November. Ryan, what do you think about the extension? I think the, the extension makes total sense. Uh, you know, we're, what we're seeing is that uh, it seems to work. Um, one of the interesting things is that the original mask uh, mandate consideration, you know, attracted all these folks that, that showed up with these fantastical <laughs> ideas about, uh, you know, authoritarian one world government going to, you know, <laughs> take over via our mask while we're all inhaling our own toxins and we're, we're all high on our own carbon dioxide and can't pay attention and the government's going to, you know, one world government's going to take over. Uh, all that ridiculous nonsense just didn't come to pass. I mean, what we've seen is greater compliance with mask requests. We've seen fewer people in retail settings having to take it upon themselves to be able to say this is some corporate policy uh, from some unknown, unaccountable, non-transparent uh, corporate body. This is the people spoke. You need to do this. And oh, hey, maybe cover your nose too. Maybe cover your nose. Maybe the, maybe put the mask up over your nose. Everybody, all 77 counties, folks, if you're out in public, uh, yeah, and and you just you know, protect yourselves, but more importantly, protect your fellow Oklahomans, put on your mask. The intensity of opposition at this compared to the to the first consideration is was just, you know, uh, just night and day. I mean, just night and day. Very few people showed up to oppose this extension. I think that, you know, they settled on this earlier date because they wanted to have, you know, some sense of being optimistic uh, and you know, optimism, you know, go for it. I, I imagine. Uh, and I, I hope they're right. You know, I, I hope that we get to you know mid-October and it's like, well, we don't have to do this anymore. But I suspect that that's not going to be the case. Uh, they'll come back. There'll be even less opposition um, with it. And, you know, at some point, the uh, I think that the, the fear, uh, the, the irrational, fantastical fear about having to wear a mask uh, will be overcome by the fact that it's not that big of a deal uh, for the kind of benefit that we all uh, benefit from whenever we when we see you know, more universal mask wearing around the state. Neva. 
Well, I think what we saw in Oklahoma City is, as you said, uh, uh, the 7-2 vote uh, was uh, overwhelming. But I think the give and take, the exchange to get there was what was a little bit fascinating to me. I mean, you had four floor amendments, very unusual in in, uh, council uh, council settings where most things are kind of... uh, Kind of foregone conclusions, mm-hmm. even what uh, even what the vote is likely to be. So they really did try to uh, kind of uh, work through that process. I mean, going from the twelve weeks, settling on the six weeks uh, for the extension of the mask ordinance, uh, but it, but bringing it back to the bigger picture of all communities in this in the state of Oklahoma. I think what we see Oklahoma City. Uh, move this direction, but we've had other even metropolitan large communities who have who have not uh, uh, put in place a mask ordinance and and had council uh, overwhelming uh, council sentiment uh, in that regard. And I think they are responding uh, by and large to uh, at least what they perceive to be a majority of the constituents in their particular wards uh, as they make these decisions. And I think it goes back to the local aspect of what people want and recognizing who are in the positions to make those decisions. And in this instance, we're talking about the uh, city council. You know, I I bet we could find some city councils in in the state that would, would, uh, in in response to their constituents, uh, you know, vote against things like, you know, seatbelt requirements and stuff like that. I mean, I think that there, there, there ought to be uh, you know, uh, trust me, I'm, I, if my grandfather was still alive, he, he would show up. If there were an opportunity for him to show up at a city council and talk about how ridiculous it was for him to wear a seatbelt, he would have done it. Uh, you know, and that's where I think you know, having some uh, leadership at the state level uh, would be helpful to give some political cover to these uh, local jurisdictions that are considering mask mandates. I, I will say this on the Oklahoma City uh, Council and their actions. I mean, the, the thought that uh, Councilwoman Jo Beth Hammond had to propose an, uh, an exception for the church services to be removed and an exception for offices to be modified. Uh, the fact that it went down uh, six to three, um, I thought was significant. And again, I think it reflects the council overall really hearing from their folks uh, in their uh, respective wards and responding accordingly. All 101 state representatives are taking part in the redistricting process coming up next year. House Speaker Charles McCall says eight regional subcommittees will seek citizens and legislators input before submitting a report to the bipartisan House Redistricting Committee. Neva, will this keep the process fair? Well, I think, uh, yes, I think um, when we look at the history in Oklahoma, we have a uh, we have a hundred year track record uh, of successful redistricting without any uh, court determinations of any improper gerrymandering. I mean, we do a good job. There's the there there's the skirmishes and the give and take, obviously, uh, uh, in terms of uh, the House membership, the Senate membership, uh, having to ultimately come to uh, uh, come to terms with what those uh, what those final boundaries and lines are going to be. But the process I think that people expect is one where there is at least an opportunity to make recommendations, have their, have kind of their, uh, their thoughts heard. That's why town hall meetings and citizen surveys and, and online uh, submissions, all of those things will be part of this process. And it also affords every single elected lawmaker 
to have an opportunity to have their uh, their time and their say in the process as well. Ultimately, all of that has to be sorted through. You have to come to a consensus. You have to come to an agreement. But it, when we look at the track record, I mean, it is hard to argue that we don't have a process that works and works well. And the notion that uh, the people, not politicians group, who are seeking a state question uh, have some have some reason to believe that some independent redistricting commission would do a better job. I mean, to me, that's uh, that's an idea that's in search of a problem that just doesn't exist here in Oklahoma. Ryan. Well, I think that uh, it's it's a it's a you know, it's a lot like saying that every lawmaker is involved in the budget process because they get to vote on the budget. Um, when you go out at the Capitol, you know, the budget is ultimately decided by, you know, a handful of individuals in the legislature and uh, a handful of folks from the governor's office, you know, to the extent that they can agree. And if they can't, I mean, even then it's, it's a very small number of people. It's a fraction of the elected representatives that actually play a role in crafting the budget process. And I, I suspect that that's what we'll see here with, with redistricting is that it's going to be. Uh, a handful of lawmakers, either by the power vested in them or in their, or, you know, frankly, in their uh, interest in it. I mean, there are going to be a lot of lawmakers that are going to kind of cede the decision-making process over to their colleagues that are more interested or, or experienced in this. And, you know, it's just not going to be something that they care about. So yeah, at the end of the day, all lawmakers are going to have a vote on this. So it's true to say that all 101 house members are going to participate in the redistricting process. But I, I think that we're really going to see a handful of lawmakers and hired uh, experts or experts in-house working for House staff that actually put together the maps uh, that would uh, govern you know, where our state legislative districts are or our congressional districts are at uh, moving forward for the next 10 years. You know, and I, I think that uh, the idea that having uh, some independence uh, removed, and that's what the, the people, not politics, group that has the ballot initiative out there, having some independence from lawmakers being able to pick their voters rather than voters being able to pick their lawmakers, having some some independent group there so that we can have greater confidence. Because what we have seen is more and more seats that are decided in primaries, not competitive general elections. Now, I'm in favor of an independent redistricting commission. I'm the first to say that I don't think that it solves the problem of a lack of competitive districts in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, if we want to solve that, we've got to move even, uh, we've got to move in a direction that doesn't just have an independent redistricting committee. We need ranked choice voting in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, we probably need to end single member majority districts and have multi-member districts and proportional voting so that we have more voices uh, across the spectrum in Oklahoma represented at the state legislature. I mean, the state legislature is not representative of the myriad of voices and attitudes and opinions in Oklahoma. And what we've done is we've tried to distill all of uh, all of Oklahoma into a couple of political parties, and it's not really working all that well for us. Uh, so if we want to bust that up, it's not just enough to have some competitive legislative uh, campaigns. We've got to have uh, more competition for the two major parties. When we have 101 House districts, 48 Senate districts, uh, and the opportunity for the folks in those districts to choose to run, to choose to support someone, to choose to back the person that is in their political uh, party or affiliation, I mean, all of those things, 
that's the process. And I think uh, um, I think as we look at redistricting, it's no different. I mean, when you talk about that, it's ultimately a handful of uh, leadership folks that are maybe making, you know, moving the needle a little bit on these decisions. Where is that not true? I mean, in Congress, I mean, if you're, uh, is that not true of whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell? I mean, this is politics. And I think when you look at redistricting, the one thing that really hasn't been talked about yet that will be something that uh, that those members do care about next year's redistricting moves along is the fact that when you look at the growth and when you look at the, the loss of population in some of the rural areas, I mean, this ultimately could very well mean that uh, that that you have you know whether it's four five six whatever the number of uh, rural seats that are going to have to probably be lost or consolidated uh, to make up for the increased uh, the increased need uh, given the growth in the metropolitan areas so that's where the give and take inside kind of inside baseball in the house and senate will come when we start really uh, when they start paying attention to redistricting after the november uh, elections Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at kosu.org.